0: You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing, positive impact on their city and the world.
1: It just became evident that we could offer consumers a way to contribute to important social issues through something they do every day.
0: I am fascinated by the idea that something can be so well designed that it not only fulfills its primary or most obvious function well, but that it also has a whole ecosystem of positive impacts. My guest today has been able to create such a thing through a cafe called Kinfolk in Melbourne's CBD. In a city that sets a high bar for the quality of its cafes and the taste of its coffee, Kinfolk initially attracts people because of its feel, its coffee and its food, and then continues to delight them as they start to understand the multiple layers of goodness that are happening around them. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk with Jared Briffer, about the subtle disruption of buying a takeaway coffee. Well, Jared, yeah, it's so good to be talking to you here today. You too. Do you want to um, first of all explain where we are? Yeah, well, we're we're above King Folk at the moment in
1: Donkey Wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, this is Donkey Wheelhouse Events. Um, recently, uh, has become a King Folk business, um, part of King. The Folk, events. The events, yeah. Has, yeah. So um, part of our sort of expansion strategy. So. Um, Kinfolk's a cafe that basically offers customers the opportunity to give back. Um, so through the purchases they make in the cafe on a daily basis, they can put a coffee bean uh, when they pay in one of the project jars that we support, and then we distribute the profits accordingly. Um, we're a registered Australian charity, and you know that's basically um, how we work out you know how much profit goes. On, goes on to um, the projects we support and all that sort of stuff, but um, the real the real impact that King Folks make makes is through the volunteer program. So um, there's about sixty volunteers a week that work in the cafe. Right. Um, they come from all walks of life. Uh, some far more challenged than others. Um, and basically, our methodology for supporting everyone is that inclusivity and diversity. So um, You have a whole spectrum of people with different needs and uh, abilities and uh, we basically run them through the training program that inducts them in hospitality, teaches them the step to service, how to wait tables, how to be hospitable in a cafe and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, on the job mentoring as they go through Um, and then basically that whole spectrum of volunteers end up supporting one another so you know the more capable ones support the less capable ones and vice versa and we I suppose through that we find out that like as individuals there's a lot we can learn from one another and through the sharing of stories and stuff that happens in the space so that's definitely like the biggest impact that we we make um and I suppose The merger of these two businesses to take on the events, which is where we sit now, um, is part of a a move to, I suppose, spread the message further beyond the walls of the cafe um, to encourage more events and uh, creative um, workshops and presentations and stuff to come here to this building. Um, the, The building itself is a real hub for social impact it's um mm. so it's great to i suppose bring more stuff here and showcase what what good work people are doing in the city so
0: yeah so maybe if you can talk a little bit more about that because um well we're on the corner of burke and spencer street in melbourne yep. this is donkey wheelhouse is the name yep. of the building yep. is that right yeah That's talk, right yeah. can you talk a bit about what goes on here because i know a little bit but it's quite a fascinating building and block yeah from cool what I gather. yeah
1: well i suppose i can probably start by telling you where the name comes from because yeah. it is quite unique and it sort of um, frames everything. Um, so the family who owned the trust that purchased the building about eight years ago, um, they inherited a lot of their money from some land in the UK and basically that land that they owned um, a long, long time ago, like you know, last century or whatever it was, it was a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> um, they their family um, owned this land and the water table had changed. And so as a result, it was really hard for people to get water, the agricultural land started to fail and people started to move away. Mm. This family um, decided to put in a a donkey wheel with a well, and it turned out the water table hadn't dropped that far. And so everyone came back and it ended up being a really productive area of land and the community thrived and it was sort of an economic hub activity um, and so that's basically what they wanted to do when they purchased this building. Um, up until the point of buying the building they'd done a lot of philanthropy but in the generic sense of you know investing on the stock market mm. you know uh, reinvesting those dividends in worthwhile projects and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but they wanted to have more of a hands-on approach to the way they did philanthropy and um, also I suppose the create something like that donkey wheel that basically um, would feed all the wonderful projects that had their own inc- um, incomes and outputs, you know, that, that, that were also, I suppose, um, re-energising the community as well. So um, when they purchased the building, it was as a social impact investment with the, with the philosophy that they would fill it out with a bunch of tenants who had their own social impacts They'd support them to get off the ground, then they would pay a commercial lease. Mm. Um, and then the money that they made from those commercial leases, they would invest in more projects and helping more people do great stuff. And that's part of what they're doing now, like they're buying new buildings and trying to replicate the model that they've done here. Right. But basically every tenant that's in the building has their own social impact and purpose yeah. um, behind how they run their organisation. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really inspiring place to work out of because there's so many people using business as a force to make difference in the world, so.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've walked past her a few times and I've been to hub the co-working space and seen a bit about what's going on, and, but actually it was only the first time last week that I've been into your cafe, surprisingly, <laughs> incidentally, as well.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, how long has the cafe been there?
1: The cafe will be six in a couple of weeks, so we opened in um, May 2010. Um, and it's been, I suppose, you know, in terms of a, a journey, it, it started from very humble beginnings. Like, we were, um, I suppose, very naive when we set up the cafe. We didn't have any capital behind us or anything like that. Um, we did some amazing work, and, and we, um, but we were really only able to get the project off the ground because of a huge amount of volunteer and community support. Hundreds of people contributed to helping that cafe come to life. Um, and we were able to get the cafe off the ground for less than $10,000 in wow. actual cash because yeah. um, of all the contributions that people made. Um, but you know, then we had to learn how to run a cafe and, and grow with our growing community of people that we were supporting. Um, there was a whole range of things as well around, um, you know, there wasn't really anything for us to sort of go, oh, this is how you run a social enterprise cafe at that time. You know, there was a few people doing a few things, but no one to the extent that we we were hoping to do it and no one doing it the way that we were doing it either, um, with the complexity of, like, the volunteer program and so forth. Um, So there was a huge amount of learning um, and we basically spent years, I suppose, just refocusing our attention on how to get the most out of the program um, and still run a viable business. Um, because I suppose unique to King Folk um, is that we're not underpinned by any bigger charities or philanthropy or anything like that. So if the business fails, the business fails. Yeah. Right? So And that's quite rare in the social enterprise space. Um, most. Most social enterprises that you see are are backed by a bigger not for profit or something like that. And it's a bit of an experiment for a lot of them to sort of shift the way they raise funds and Mm. they create awareness and stuff like that. But um, Kinfolk's quite unique in that sense that uh, we have to run as a business first and foremost. And I think that's probably been one of the biggest, like, one of the biggest contributors to our success as a cafe is that we've had to be sh- sure that we're gonna be judged on the merit of what we do as a cafe first and foremost, and then the social enterprise and charitable stuff as a secondary factor, so.
0: Yeah, so it's pretty interesting that, so six years ago, you, it seems like you didn't have much of an idea about social enterprise, you didn't have much of an idea about cafe, but you just gave it a go, and you were one of the pioneers to create such a thing, maybe in Melbourne, or at least that you heard of. What what was the spark, like what got I think, into that? Program? I
1: think we had a bit of an idea about social enterprise, but okay. how it actually works in practice, that's a whole different ballgame. You know? Yeah. So, um, like, you know, and I, I, and I always say I won't take credit for what it's become, you know, like I'm just one, one, sure. one of the cogs in big wheel. Yeah. But, um, you know, my personal journey is that um, I studied entrepreneurship at RMIT. Um, and a lot of my studies I focused on social enterprise and did a lot of reading and stuff personally around different models that had been used and stuff like that. But um, all that theory is great in theory, (laughs) Um, but in practice um, it's a whole different thing, you know, and, um, yeah, nothing can prepare you for what that, what actually happens once the business starts, you know, so, yeah, but I think we were, like, hugely naive, but that's probably the, the thing that um, enabled us to keep going because you never knew how much was in front of you, you know, so... It's necessary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: it's, like, probably the biggest asset we had is that <laughs> naivety, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so you just take us back a little bit then, like, we'll, I mean what was the reason for you, like why did you want to start Kinfolk and you know you, you said you studied entrepreneurship but what happened in the middle there?
1: Yeah I think um, I suppose like before, before that whole journey with Kinfolk um, I'd spent several years um, living in India um, after, a, after about a year of university I went to India and lived there for about two years. and. Um, Yeah, I saw a lot of people with not a lot, but I saw a lot of people being, like, hugely entrepreneurial to improve their situation as well. And um, I suppose, yeah, part of my realisation back here and when I decided that I wanted to get involved in doing business, um, I thought it just made sense that business could easily be used as a leverage point for creating good in the world. Um, As long as the right... um, Foundations and intentions were set up to underpin the way the organisation runs, um, and to ensure that it doesn't get corrupted. Because you know sometimes you know a really good marketing message can cloud what a business is actually doing. You know if the intentions are really clear, that underpin the organisation, you can actually run the organisation in a way that its sole focus is to create social um, social outcomes and social good. So. Um, yeah, I suppose once we started working on the plan for King Folk, um, it just became evident that we could offer consumers a way to contribute to important social issues through something they do every day. And I suppose the unique thing about that is that, um, you know, there's heaps of people doing great work in the um, in the philanthropic and um, charitable space. but. A lot of what you do with social enterprise is you activate dollars that aren't necessarily intended for creating social value yeah. um, and that's like our customers you know they um, they want a good coffee or they want a great lunch or you know they want somewhere really groovy to go and have their private dinner party or they want a good you know as in with the events now they want somewhere good to have their corporate workshop or do their presentation or whatever it may be, and we focus on you know the actual commercial offering there. You know, like we're competing against the same commercial businesses that already existed. You know, there's other cafes, there's other restaurants down this end of town. Yeah. We're competing for the same spend there. We're not competing for some other charity's donation or anything like that. So, um, yeah, and I suppose like. That whole notion really excited me in terms of um, yeah,
0: creating new ways to
1: fund social outcomes. So,
0: yeah. 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 So the people that do volunteer, how? What's your relationship with them, or where do they actually come from, and how do you engage them?
1: It's it's an open door policy, um, and it's it's all based around inclusion. So um, up until about twelve months ago, um, we didn't really have. Uh, any formed partnerships with anyone, referring people. So it was basically, if you wanted to volunteer at Kinfo, you had to apply like everyone else. you, you go through the induction process, and basically everyone who's involved in the program is, doing th- is there on their own volition. Like, it's, it's what they want to do, they want to be there for their own personal reasons. Um, I suppose where, we've, where the program's become successful is that um, we've put a lot of focus into um, personalising it to the individuals that are involved, so at an early stage I suppose we realised that we were getting a lot of interest in terms of volunteering but we weren't keeping a lot of volunteers for that long. I think the average in the beginning was about three to four months. But what we've done is we've tried to listen to the volunteers that are coming we've tried to personalize the experience for them and we've tried to make sure that they're getting as much out of it as possible so if they if they want to gain skills in hospitality you know we try to broaden that you know beyond the basics and um, if they're looking to get a job we try to build up the skills that they they want they they need to have and then provide them with a reference so they can go and get one. But then there's other things too, you know, like there's a lot of people that come there for connection, they're trying to build friendships and so we do a whole heap of extra activities, you know, like this, this weekend we're taking a group of volunteers, mushroom foraging, you know, so Great, like right. you know, it's a whole heap of different things that we'll do. Um, yeah, so I suppose it, uh, there's a whole heap of ways that we support the volunteers and as a result of that, and personalising the program to them, um, the average stay for volunteers has increased from about three months in the beginning to about nine months now. Um, but I suppose, like you know, the 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 point of it is that um, for us on an everyday basis, you know, giving away the profits that's that's great, but that's not something you connect with on a daily basis. Um, the real connection is the people, and that's. That's what it's all about, you know, when you're in there working uh, or even up here working and going down there several times a day, those connections that you make and the way that you're able to both support the people down there but also that they're able to support you and um, that's where the meaningful stuff happens and, you know, um, it's it's a lot less tangible than the dollars that we give away. but um, it's massive, like, in terms of um, how, m- how much the experience of King Folk, I suppose, impacts the lives of, you know, the vast community of people that are involved and, you know, like I said, it's about 60 volunteers a week and, you know, up to about 100 a year, so...
0: Yeah. yeah. What's... Can you share one of the stories that, I guess, has been uh, most impacting to yourself and the volunteers?
1: Um, yeah, so uh, I won't say any names sure, and stuff like that, yeah. but um, uh, you yeah, know, there's been there's been some really interesting ones of late. Like we we, we support a whole range of people. Um, uh, one of the programs that we've been supporting lately is um, are supporting uh, some men who are transitioning from prison. Um, and, uh, yeah, we've we just, uh, just recently, um, you know, one of the guys has been released and we've been able to offer him some paid employment. And um, I suppose, like, the great thing about, about that is that um, it's, it's able to offer people a second chance and um, it does so in a way that their experience isn't tokenized um, it does so through the inclusion, like, of being a part of something, you know, like, so when, Mm. when, when each individual comes and, you know, contributes to kinfolk, um, they do so from a a point that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. So it's, it's not like, you know, going into a program where, you know, this program's set up to support, you know, people who are experiencing, Homelessness, or whatever it may be, right? And like there's there's a there's a place and need for all those things, right? So um, definitely not having a stab at any any other programs, but um, the unique thing about King Folk is that our method for supporting those people is through the the inclusive environment that we create. So whereby no one's identified for their their past or you know their situation when you're coming there, we're sort of we're all there for the same reason. Yeah. And a lot of the good work happens out of that inclusive environment um, and getting to know one another You know, as much as you want to share and, you know, so.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. So. And
0: with the event space, is it a, a natural extension of that in terms of, you know, you'll be getting volunteers involved with this as well, uh, but in a different capacity?
1: Yeah, so um, we're, we're able to do a lot of bigger bigger events where we can sort of, I suppose, invite more people in. And we've sort of used these, we've used these event spaces for some bigger activations um, during last year. We did like, we did a big fundraiser after the Nepal earthquake and um, another one with the Kathy Freeman Foundation towards the end of the year. Um, and they're, they're, they're the sort of things like, you know, I think we fed about 200 people at each of those. They're the sort of things you can't do in a cafe, like. You know, um, you can't put on something big scale like that, and yeah. you know, share share the message in that that sort of sense. Um, but also, the event spaces are a really good opportunity for collaboration, um, and that's the thing that I suppose I love most about it is that it's an opportunity to work with other people who are doing amazing stuff, and um, yeah, share our share our knowledge and skills and Create something together, um, and yeah, there's just there's so much for us all to learn from one another, and I think it's great to have spaces like this that enable that sort of collaboration. So yeah,
0: yeah. Um, you've said that, uh, well, you seem to be suggesting that there's a few different people involved. Can you talk about your team now and who's actually involved in Kinfolk?
1: Yeah, cool. So, um, well, one of the one of the things we did probably three years ago is um, the original founders, we all stepped down uh, from the board and uh, we put in place an independent board Um, and that's been really great for us, I suppose, like after that we also registered Kinfolk as an Australian charity as well, rather than just being a not-for-profit, which is what a lot of the social enterprises fall under, just a not-for-profit structure. But being a charity, I suppose, it gives us a greater level of transparency around what we do um, and accountability as well. Um, So yeah, it's really great to have that independent board now and they basically help to ensure that everything's transparent. Um, And then we've got um, myself and the management team. So um, yeah, there's a big team of really passionate people. There's about 25 staff now, I think. Within Kinfolk, uh, yeah, well. in different capacities—full time, to part time, and casual. Um, uh, but there's like, yeah, there's Yo and Yo and Lily. So Lily's the volunteer manager. So she's the one who rosters the sixty odd volunteers each week. <laughs> Yo's the operations manager, and she really keeps the cafe on track and um, yeah, within within clear lines, I suppose. Um, Hero, our head chef, um, uh, he's come from a fine dining background and this is, I suppose, an opportunity for him to do something different with his culinary skills yeah. um, and to give back and you know, support the community as well. So, um, and then, yeah, there's, you know, there's a whole heap of long-term staff like our baristas and yeah, people who have been involved in supporting King Folk um,
0: yeah.
1: for a long time. Um, and then, yeah, the recent expansion into up here as well, so, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Does this keep you, or in terms of your own personal time, is this what you work on?
1: Yeah, yeah, so I work now as the CEO of the company, so, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff we're doing, um, you know, the, the I suppose the... The recent like merger to take over the event spaces, that's been a big one. Um, we're currently looking at a new site at the moment, but um, for a cafe For or? a cafe, yeah, yeah, and sort of a production kitchen for our catering as well. Um, so there's I think what we've realized in the last few years as we've sort of solidified our systems and understood our model a bit better. Um, there's a lot of scope for what we do. Um, and we've got the business model right now. Um, uh, that's gonna continue to evolve as we grow, um, but it makes sense and it works. Um, last financial year, uh, 99% of the turnover we did was through trade. So, um, and you know, we still had 56,000 profit last year to donate to the charities as well. So what do you mean through trade so um, so like there's you know there's basically no philanthropic funding or government grants right. or anything yeah, like that yeah. yeah and so yeah in the in the social enterprise space um, you know that like that end of the spectrum is rare yeah. like so even even a lot of businesses that are doing like amazing stuff in the social enterprise space they're still at like 65 70% of their income is through trade um, yeah. And they' you know they're obviously scaling and you know growing to points where they will be closer to the hundred yeah. um, percent but yeah we've sort of I suppose through nature of how we were started um, with no funding um, we basically had to set it up like that from day one so um, yeah it's 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 quite cool I think to th- to see that you know we're we're creating the outcomes we are through the business that we operate. And, yeah. yeah not is, time, stuff, so.
0: is there in terms of that business model, is there something like is there a key learning about it that you've discovered in terms of creating a, a social enterprise out of a cafe, or has it been you know quite an incremental thing that, as you say, it's evolving? Or you know how have you got it to that point of being that sort of business model?
1: Yeah, I think it's always evolving, um, but I think the main the main thing like in terms of a learning, um, like people are crucial like you know, especially with small business and that's all I really have experiencing at the moment but um, uh, if you don't have the right people you, you don't have the right business. Um, so I suppose our key learning has been to make sure that we are providing the right roles for the right people and the right support for them as well so they can do great work um, and the sort of work that they want to be doing. Um, and that often, you know, getting that right at a, a staff point often translates to the experience that our volunteers have as well. It can also translate back to the customers yeah. and um, it sort of fulfills this cycle where, you know, be, they can tend to become one and the same. Like, a, two of our board members uh, were long-term customers before they um, before they came on the board. You know, they, yeah. they were people who, you know, learned about King Folk over time, became extremely passionate about the way that we do business, and now they offer their services voluntary to help it grow as well. So. Um, yeah, but I think as well, like you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a number of key business learnings, like in terms of Kinfolk, and um, yeah, probably another big one would be that you know you're never ready. <laughs> so um, we, if if I had a because we do, we have a number of people who are setting up social enterprise and stuff like that now who want to talk to us about. You know our learnings and you know, how we can give them some advice on how to do things in a better way or whatever. But um, I often look at these people's uh, business plans and so forth, and I think, wow, they're they're not ready to start that business, but we were way behind where they were, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. we did it. You know. Yeah. So on paper, it doesn't necessarily make sense, or maybe it sounds really good, but when you dig a bit deeper, you go, yeah, but is it really going to work? We had a great business plan before we started Kinfolk. Um, and that was, you know, we had a lot of people, including myself, who that was, our, that was our education and training. We'd done a lot of that stuff before. We knew how to write business plans, you know, we knew had to pitch a business idea, that sort of stuff. Yeah. But still, if you really broke it down, you know, you'd, you'd go, you'd got no money, you know, you've you never run a cafe before, don't do it. Um, but that's not to say it's not going to work, <laughs> so um, yeah, I think like probably the biggest thing that comes out of all that is like if the intention is really clear and people really believe in it, then all the business things don't need to stack up. and. Um, you know, it's it's good to do the work, but if people really believe in it and the intentions are clear, they'll make it work. Like they'll find they'll find those answers, and they might fall over once or twice, but they'll pick themselves back up again if they really believe in it. So yeah, yeah. you can never underestimate, um, yeah, just well, I suppose sort of that blind fate in an idea. So yeah, um, yeah, we really we we. Really believe that this was going to work um, beyond the odds that we were
0: facing, and we somehow
1: have made it <laughs> yeah. work. So yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah.
0: I think like, it's so true as well. And maybe the obvi- the opposite is true that if you don't if you don't really believe in idea in an idea, <laughs> you have to have your business model rock solid, yeah. or else it's got no chance. Yeah, of yeah, succeeding. totally. Yeah, but yeah, if you you know if you're if what you're trying to do is coming from a really authentic place and it's deep inside you and you, you kind of know that you're, you're just not going to take no for an answer. Like, they're not going to be problems. They're just going to be ways to test your yeah. skill that you come yeah. up against. Then, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: And, like, I, cu- I couldn't tell you how many times, you know, especially through the building phase in the beginning, that we were told that this wasn't going to work. And we were told by not numerous people, even, like, basic little things, like, you know, um, plumbers telling us that, you know, to... Put a kitchen in that space we were going to need to spend sixty thousand dollars for you know um to dig up the road and all this sort of stuff and you know there were three people that said that was the only way to do it and then we managed to find someone who said no you can do it for about five thousand so yeah there was all like you know know what i mean there's always someone saying no there's always but if you just believe you can you can often find way that's, that's there but no one's seeing it you know and yeah. once you find it it's just so blatantly obvious you know all those pl- all those plumbers after we found that solution they said oh yeah you can do that and um, <laughs> that's sort of been the experience with setting up a social enterprise is that you know it sounds like a lot of facets of it sound really stupid and naive to people before they're actually happening. Yeah. And then when they're actually happening, people go, oh, why aren't more people doing this? <laughs> like, and um, yeah. so yeah, that's, that's one of the interesting sort of battles that you face in doing something that's a bit alternative like that. But it's also one of the really rewarding things as well is that seeing when, and, and you know, like um, I think you see it especially strong in our customers perception shift like and it's subtle it's not something that just like that they walk in for the first time maybe some people it is but generally especially the way we started we didn't want people to know we were a social enterprise cafe so some people would come five six ten times you know have a coffee have breakfast um, tell their mates about it bring them here and then they would start to realize oh what's What's this coffee bean thing? What's going on here? Like, there, like when that subtle realization happens, like it's just so obvious to people that yeah, why don't, why can't we do business like this? Like, because I love this cafe. You know, I come here for the food and the coffee and the atmosphere, but I'm also making a difference with that dollar that I would have spent somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, when, when someone makes, like, that realization on that level, it's really, it has a huge impact. Whereas if it's just you walk into the charity cafe and you know you're doing good, that's why you go there, like, it's a whole different thing, yeah. you know? Like, the way you, you perceive it and the way you value it as well yeah. is a whole different thing to, you know, it's just the place that you feel that, you know, you get the best coffee or the best breakfast or
0: whatever, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. I love it how you've done it that way and allowing people just to sort of discover it for themselves rather than, you know, kind of shouting it. Yeah, out. I think that's really impacting for people, yeah. like you say.
1: I think it was really important as well for us in terms of the sustainability of what we do as a business because, you know, like I said, we, we didn't really have any second chances, so. Mm. If people didn't love Kinfolk as a business from day one, like regardless of any of the social stuff that we do, if they didn't love the food and the coffee and the service and whatnot, they wouldn't come back and we didn't have enough money to sort of keep reinventing ourselves to to try and get them to come back. So um, it was really important for us that we met our customers' needs on that level from day one. Um, yeah, and that's been like yeah, a huge part of the success of what it is. And I and I think as well, like it just adds a lot of value to for the volunteers and everyone else who's a part of it. That they they're not a part of some charity thing. Like they're part of a great cafe Something as really well. Cool. You know, yeah. like serving great food. They're learning about different ingredients all the time, different cooking methods, or you know even foraging foods and stuff like that. So
0: um, yeah, there's heaps of heaps of scope. Yeah, your own sort of personal learning within the space. What are you noticing around Melbourne in terms of social enterprise and the type of business that you're, the type of social enterprise that you're running? Are you seeing that there's a broadening of the conversation and more happening? You know, more people where the pennies dropping saying, wow, more people doing business like this. Yeah,
1: I, yeah, definitely. I think there's, there's heaps more of it. Um, and I think people are starting to realise that it's a valid way for them to not only earn an income, but to also, um, I suppose, achieve their own personal goals. And so, as a result of that, you know, there's been a bunch of social enterprises that have inspired numerous other people to go and you know, try, their, try their luck at making business, you know, start a business that's gonna make a difference for others. Um, and yeah, there's, there's some really inspiring examples of it. Um, I think we've got to, like, as a consumer though, like, it's important as well to sort of be interested enough to ask the big questions. Because it's really easy for, like, the whole thing of social enterprise just to sort of not really be understood. And I think a lot of consumers don't really understand what a social enterprise is. Um, And I think, yeah, I think in terms of longevity and like um, actually ensuring that we are setting up like resilient uh, social enterprises that are having a social impact um, and are not just sort of marketing spin on corporate social responsibility, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's important for us as consumers to ask the bigger questions about what does that actually mean, you know, that business is a social enterprise but what does it actually mean, you know. Um, And for me what that is, is that the, the intention, like the sole purpose for why it's set up is to create some sort of social good or social outcome and that's embedded into the way they operate as a company, so it's not just a tack on, you know, like so. If, for instance, with kinfolk, if if we just gave the profit away, um, I suppose you could still call that a social um, social business. But I really think it needs to be more than that. Um, and profits, an interesting thing. We sort of I didn't think we'd talk about this today, but you know, <laughs> prof- profits like an accounting term. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day. How profit is defined is up to auditors and accountants and stuff like that. Um, And uh, in terms of like what the business does, like if you think about what a business does throughout a whole year, social enterprise or not, um, there's a whole heap of stuff that doesn't translate into that little bit of profit that's left over at the end. Um, And Kinfolk's a good example of that, where like you know, I think our average profit margin over the last, well, I can't say this year because we haven't been audited yet, but like the, five, the first five years was about sort of four and a half to five percent um, of our takings. Um, so there's, there's 95 cents in every dollar that's being spent on something else. So really, it's just as important how we're spending that 95 cents as yeah. it is how we're donating our five cents in every dollar profit. Yeah. Um, and that's, I suppose, that's a, like that's an important thing to look at in terms of social enterprise. Is it's got to be more than just the money you give away, um, because the money that you're earning and the way you're earning that money is often having an even bigger impact than what you're going to do with the profits. So, what we do with Kinfolk is we sort of focus on a, uh, an ethos of conscious consumption, and. The notion behind that is that we ask the big questions about everything that we do and everything that we spend money on. and I suppose it's, it's, it's developing an understanding that, okay, it's never going to be perfect because there's always a balance, right? You've got to keep the business alive. You want to do things as ethically as possible as well. And often you don't need to make much of a compromise. Like I definitely wouldn't say that it's always a compromise between profit and purpose, yeah. right? But there are definitely times where you go, okay, we can't make an investment at the moment, but we know that long term it would be better in terms of our conscious approach to business to do that. Yeah. So what's the trajectory? How do we get to that point? And you're constantly trying to reevaluate it so that you can't get there. Um, but because because we like embed so much of the social outcome into the way we operate, so like for instance through the volunteer program, um, there's a lot of things like that that mean that we're getting so much more than that five cents in every dollar um, yeah. social, link, social outcome. So, um, and you know a lot of it's not tangible, but it's the money that we've invested through our sales that have enabled a lot of that work totally. to happen. So.
0: Yeah, Yeah. there's a couple of things I really like about that. One is that social procurement. I don't know if you know um, Mark Daniels from Social Traders and Mm -hmm. and some of the really exciting stuff he's doing with big corporates, helping them redirect just a small percentage of their procurement dollars to other social enterprises and and you know not yeah just siphoning off their profits for for good stuff, but also how they spend their expenses as well, which is yeah it's super exciting. And the other thing is just you know, the, what you was talking about there in terms of not always every dollar might, or every cent in every dollar might not be spent in terms of conscious consumption, but it's definitely the intention to head it in that direction and going back to thinking about how you started the business and it's like, well, you you know, you didn't have a completely perfect plan right at the start mm-hmm. you didn't have it all worked out and you, you don't have it all worked out in terms of how you're going to spend every cent, but that's Consciously, but that's okay. Like it's the attention is to move it in that direction, and if you work to have it perfect and have it all worked out, you'd never start the business, and you'd probably never spend any cent. Well, that's the that and way. it's
1: it's you know society's evolving around you all the time. So um, even if you did have it worked out on the day you started, it'd be outdated the next. So yeah. um, and we we had a little tenant meeting where all the tenants of the building got together today and. Because one of the things we were talking about is that, you know, even when you get it right, you know that soon we have to evolve it again or change something because something's going to change around us that's going to force us to, you know, if we want to be ethical with those choices or, you know, more more ethical or whatever, there's going to be a new, there's going to be some new
0: thing that we need to change <laughs> right. and take on and stuff like that. So, Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of questions that I ask people yeah. as I wrap up the podcast, but um, the first question is around uh, something that you daydream about subtly disrupting one day in the future, perhaps outside of what you're doing here in Kinfolk or maybe a, a tangent extension to Kinfolk, but what's something that you know, is just in the back of your mind perhaps that you daydream about being involved with one day?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one for me because I don't know how it
0: ever mm-hmm. make it work.
1: Um But I think there's just so much potential and scope for it um, and you know like uh, we've I suppose as kinfolk we've had an opportunity to sort of dabble with um, with composting over over the last um, well eighteen months or so um, through a collaboration so we've we've wanted to compost since day one, but being a business in the cbd it 's always been difficult because um, there's no space for composting and People have got all these, like, I suppose, uninformed opinions about, you know, oh, if you compost, you'll have rats and all sorts of stuff like that. And then, you know, if they're done well, it's no worse than rubbish. You know, you've got bins everywhere with rubbish. What's the, you know, so. um, But, yeah, we've never been able to find a way to compost without paying exorbitant amounts of money for people to come and collect our organic waste. being a CBD business until the Savoy Tavern moved in, um, they got a closed loop composting machine. Um, But the interesting thing about it is it needs 100 kilos of organic matter to turn on. And they as a business don't produce that every day. So for them to use it, they actually needed to collaborate with someone. And I think there's great opportunities for cities around those sorts of things anyway. Um, I think there's even greater opportunity of actually finding some way of composting naturally on the land rather than using electricity like they do to you know turn 100 kilos of organic matter into 10 kilos of soil overnight. I think there's definitely ways that we could you know find ways to collaborate across industries of you you know using like the waste from sawmills and then the waste from restaurants and, you know, uh, organic composting on the land um, to produce fertile soil that we grow our vegetables and stuff in. Um, And, you know, I think that's one of the the big things with um, farming now is that, you know, so much of it's done with unnatural methods and pesticides and so forth. So a lot of the nutrient quality in the soils... Um, that's, you know, producing the food that we're eating is so low yeah. that you sort of wonder like how much goodness that we actually getting out of that food. So, yeah, I think, you know, as a big dream, I'd love to sort of, yeah, be able to sort of vision, vision a way that that could happen and that, you know, um, yeah, we could, on a much bigger scale than what we do at the moment. We, would use composting as a way to you know improve,
0: improve the supply chain as well. So, I think yeah. that's a uh, pretty exciting for What you got there because yeah. even just thinking about all the apartments yeah, in urban areas that there are and composting's not even a consideration no. if you live in an apartment no. No. really, um, yeah it's yeah. super exciting.
1: Yeah, And what can you do with it if you live in an apartment like look at all these buildings around here you know like there's an there's incredible amount of like, one-bedroom apartments and stuff going up. But even if you had a little composter that you had on your balcony or something, you'd never be able to fill up all your pot plants with what you produce <laughs> yeah. from it. So
0: like, yeah. what's the point? So, yeah. 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 Uh, the last question is about um, your own life. Um, this podcast is called Subtle Disruptors. And yep. um, what's something subtle that you've done in your own life on your own journey that's helped you get to this place where you are today and um, perhaps something that, you know, would be interesting for other people to apply to their own life potentially. Yeah, um, and I suppose I had quite a
1: subtle journey with it because it wasn't something that i ever planned, I'm going to go out and learn more about that, but um, I suppose like mindfulness is one thing Um, and it probably like started for me with my journey in India, I was like nineteen and left Australia and went and travelled around India for a couple of years and um, yeah, I did a lot of like meditation and stuff while I was there. But I was still so young that like you know, you're sort of doing these things, but how much of it do you under- actually understand? And um, but there's definitely things that I learnt throughout that time that um, you know, I've sort of. They've been under the surface, I might not have known what they were or the impacts they had, but they've informed things for me going forward. Um, and then I got the chance through King Folk of um, collaborating with a lady named Kelvin De Shields, um, who runs a, a thing called Calm in the City. She's basically trying to bring calm to the centre of the city through meditation. And um got to do quite a bit of work with Cal around meditation and mindfulness and understanding, I suppose, my own thoughts and my attachment to them. And um, some of the work that I did with Cal around that like happened at like a, I suppose, a really transformative moment of my journey. Um, where, yeah, I just realized that attachment could never be a positive force in my life and um, I sort of was faced with a a situation where um, whilst I wasn't like saying I'm gonna give all this away that I've worked so hard at or whatever I sort of had to make the decision where it was like um, I'm not attached to that and I could give it away if it meant that and in that moment um, It's like every worry, every um, stress or pain that I was feeling in regards to that is just like gone, washed away and we can start afresh. And like I suppose the realization I had in that moment, I've been able to um, incorporate that into the rest of my journey in terms of like no matter how great something becomes or how much you love it or whatever else. not to be attached to it, because you often don't see it for what it is then. Um, and you often, like, you know, a lot of people, I think, when I've talked to them about this before, they can sort of view it initially as a negative thing, like, oh, that's so negative, they never be attached to anything or whatever yeah. else like that. Yeah. But it also allows you to love things more and love people more and, like, be, be you know authentic in your experience with others more, um, because at the end of the day, you're not you're not um, worried about how your authenticity will be um, received and whether you know it will be rejected or whatever else. You're not attached to that outcome, so yeah. you can be more um, authentic in the the journey and the process as a result. So yeah I suppose the that's probably the biggest thing for me is, has been uh, understanding my relationship with attachment and how I can use non-attachment as a really positive way of both influencing my journey but also helping those helping the journeys of those around me as well so
0: it's awesome, Jared. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much for talking with us today. No thanks, Adam. It's been awesome. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at disruptors.com. And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, a great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. I'm Adam Murray, and I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now.